Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. The Central Asian states will soon start marking 32 years of independence, yet more than three decades since the five countries became independent, most of the same ways of describing the Central Asian countries and the region are still being used today. They are post-Soviet countries, or Russia's backyard, or near abroad. They're located on China's doorstep or north of Afghanistan. The discussion over Central Asia's history after Russia colonized the region is increasing among people of Central Asia and foreign scholars studying the region. Part of this decolonial discussion is how the words people use when writing about Central Asia downgrade the agency of the countries and the people, and in worst-case scenarios seem to continue binding Central Asia to the so-called great powers, particularly Russia. To discuss all this, I am joined by Botakaz Kasimbekova, a lecturer, assistant professor in modern history at the University of Basel, Erika Marat, professor at the National Defense University's College of International Security Affairs, and they are the authors of a recent article, Reclaiming the Narrative, Decolonizing Central Asian Studies for a More Inclusive Understanding. Thank you both for joining me. And, and Botakaz, I'd like to start with you. Some of the words I said at the, at the start of this, I mean, how, how do these phrases like near abroad, post-Soviet, I mean, how does that, that still perpetuate Central Asia's image as not having any agency? Well, first of all, thank you for the invitation. And uh, we are starting a very important discussion at a very important historical moment. And I think one of the things that we need to be aware of when we discuss categories is to understand that they are all political. They are never neutral categories through which we understand the world. They are kind of political tools for us to imagine regions, imagine actors, imagine people. And that's why kind of the words uh, that we use are tools for us to imagine certain agents. So uh, words like post-Soviet do some political work that sometimes we do not even understand or we are not alert to it. But once we understand that all words are political and do political work, we can ask, so what does the word post-Soviet, for example, do? Well, it does several things. We, we will start with the fact that uh, we don't understand is it a, if it is a temporal category does it mean post-Soviet? It's a um, time framework. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, we had in the 90s kind of this idea of, uh, of transition time. So it's kind of uh, it, uh, the idea of this transition uh, transition was rooted in the idea uh, of modernization. So um, uh, the idea that once the ex-communist countries uh, go uh, to a different kind of economic uh, system from communist to capitalist, uh, then uh, there will be um, kind of a, a new class of people who will form civil society and they will tra transit to a kind of universal time, which is a very West-centric understanding of kind of the normal. The normal is kind of this uh, capitalist democratic societies. So um, the idea 
that the region, the, pro- the main problem was economic problem that influenced kind of the political makeup. And once we got rid of kind of the communist system, there will be transition to the Western idea. So uh, we don't understand, is it kind of a, a temporal idea that is rooted in this kind of thinking of the world? Second, it was not clear if it is a spatial category. Does it mean these countries who were part, uh, that, that were part of the regime? And so what it did, this kind of temp- regional kind of category, spatial category, is that it allowed it to stay very Russo-centric because Moscow was seen as kind of the center of the uh, Soviet Union. So the post-Soviet was also kind of Moscow was the center and all of the rest are kind of simply part of that idea. It erased hierarchies in that in that polity, but it also erased kind of the colonial history. So uh, the colonial history of Moscow kind of colonizing kind of non-Russian territories. So this kind of work that it, that these categories do, is it's not simply kind of laziness of political imagination, although it is as well, but it's also a certain, a, a certain specific kind of political imagery that is being constructed. So also it is an external category. So people in the region don't, you know, describe themselves as post-Soviet or, well, People not I, I, when I say people, I don't mean kind of everyone, but also but uh, those who are actually coining kind of political categories, so that for example, journals or institutes would not call themselves the Journal of Post-Soviet Central Asia. This is not something uh, that would be kind of a category uh, of self-description. So, and I think. Uh, right now, we are in the kind of process of rethinking everything, including categories, and critiquing the kind of political work that they do. And um, what it did is kind of this category of post-Soviet is overlook overlook the agency of of uh, polities like Ukraine, the Bal- uh, Baltic countries. It kind of equated Moscow, for example, and Estonia. <laughs> Although we can see now that the political traje- trajectories that the, these kind of uh, places went are radically different. So the word post-Soviet does not allow to capture um, a lot of the dynamics in the field. At the same time, I would say that Post-Sovietness is kind of, when we look at it as an epistemic category, I think we very, I think we would not be able to see that post-Sovietness is also a choice. So I would argue that one can still look at continuities from kind of the Soviet era in um, the contemporary era in many different places, but um, one one overlooks kind of the agency of people of grappling with this kind of uh, Soviet continuities and the political changes and cultural changes uh, and changes in imagination that um, that are wide and broad in in, in these different polities and places uh, that were previously uh, thought of one flat flattened uh, space um, and 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 time. Of uh, of post Sovietness. Sorry, that was a bit <laughs> a little bit long, but yeah, this is what I could say to that term. Thank you, thank you. And Erica, of course, you're free to add anything that you want to, but I also want uh, to ask a little bit about when people describe Central Asia, they they put like in terms of geography, right? It wedged between giant neighbors, Russia and China, or you know, in the Western case, like your article said, uh, a lot of Western 
people identify Central Asia as being north of Afghanistan, like I mentioned, because I know where Afghanistan is, most people, uh, after 20 years of U.S.-led operation there. But but Central Asia is, is something seemed distant for them. But that so how does this this categorization, this uh, description of Central Asia also hinder Central Asia's um, you know, the image of Central Asia as being five independent countries? Right. So north of Afghanistan or sandwiched between Russia and China or um, any other kind of externalized uh, locator of Central Asia, it is part of the same narrative as um, Central Asia as this distant, unknown, understudied, exotic region that frankly became so normalized um, in uh, Western literature, uh, sometimes in uh, Russian literature as well. Uh, denying uh, the, again, denying the agency of the local population for whom it is not a distant, it is not an unknown and exotic region, and it it is a very well-known region for people who live there. And I think uh, that's, uh, there are many factors at play here why uh, Western academia continuously presented Central Asia and kind of normalized this language of um, Central Asia as being unknown. It's uh, part of that, of course, is also to be able to sell own work um, in a competitive uh, Western academia to show that here we are studying this understudied region. Um, Part of it is also, I think, lack of understanding of the region and lack of uh, connection with the region, sustainable connection with the region among uh, Western scholars um, who sometimes come for a brief period of time and um, extract knowledge from local sources and then uh, produce uh, their academic works. And uh, part of it is also this lack of awareness of the connection to your field and uh, as being ethical area studies specialist uh, or let's let's say political scientist anthropologist social sociologist um, who studies an area and some of the discussions we're having now in central asia are really uh, not new in area studies but unfortunately it takes um, a brutal war and uh, really decolonial uprising, I guess, in uh, among um, scholars from Central Asia to kickstart conversations about how you can't just be um, extracting knowledge from a region that you call unknown for the purposes of your own career. Uh, but you really need to connect with the region. You need to give back. You need to... Um, treated uh, was uh, was care and ethically and try to listen to the conversations that are happening on the ground and contribute to them uh, as opposed to define those conversations for um, your readers and to put your own lens on what is happening um, your own explanations to what what is happening um, in an area. Uh, yeah, so the, these are the kind of conversations happened um, in Africa, in Latin America, um, and 
South Asian studies that you just you can't extract knowledge. You don't present something as exotic. You don't. Uh, yeah, you 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 try to you don't mystify the region um, on purpose, but um, you try to understand. And of course, you don't use the ca- categories like um, you don't you don't view the region from the perspective of Russia, China, or North of Afghanistan. But you try to connect to the to the to conversations happening on the ground as much as possible. No, thanks, and and thank you for helping me transition into my next point here, which is a little bit about Russia and and the way that they view their situation in Central Asia. Now, you know, you mentioned that some of these former European colonies in in Africa or South America or, or even a, or in Asia, you know, that they've kind of shed that that mentality of being a colony. And and back in the, the European countries uh, that colonized them too, there there also has been a pr- pretty big debate, at least in most of them, about what their role was and, and what, you know, uh, that, that it wasn't all positive. And in fact, most of it might have been real negative and, and, and selfish on the part of the European countries. Uh, but what about Russia? When they look at Central Asia, I mean, they, you know, they've been there since the 18th century in some parts, certainly the 19th century all over. Um, you know, you still had Russia, Turkestan, Chinese Turkestan. How does Russia look at that you see? How does Russia look at Central Asia? I'll start with Erica, but I want to ask both to cause the same thing in a minute, too. Well, Unfortunately, um, and Botakos writes about it a lot, uh, there isn't really much of intellectual tradition in Russia uh, to free uh, Russian academia from colonial thinking, imperial thinking. And it is really a normal normative, normal thing uh, for which a lot of Russian intellectuals will try, you know, will argue um, that it's okay for Russia to call countries post-Soviet. It's okay to call countries formerly occupied by the Soviet uh, regime as the near abroad. They don't see any politicization in those categories. They see them as neutral, as natural. Um, and that's really unfortunate. And I, I'm afraid to say, but the countries that were formerly occupied by the Soviet regime, by Russia, they are far ahead in their discussions and their um, awareness of what the Soviet um, and Russian occupation meant and uh, what Russia today is as a, as an imperial power than Russian academia. And I'm not just saying Russian academia and Russia and Moscow and St. Petersburg. Unfortunately, in the West as well, we see lots of native Russian scholars, uh, again, from most, uh, from larger cities. That's a whole other conversation to have about how Western academia hires um, Russian specialists uh, from um, major cities in Russia. But anyways, um, even there, even among Russian studies in the West, we don't see uh, this awakening that is happening all around Russia, from um, Ukraine to, of course, the Baltic states to the Caucasus, Central Asia, Moldova. Um, Russia is really behind. And I'm not sure this war has not really pro- provoked any deeper thinking in that sense. Uh, I mean, some there, there are some notable scholars, of course, who are trying, uh, genuinely trying to to reprocess Russian history and Russian foreign policy today. But overall, the field has been stagnant. I, I don't know what else 
it would take for Russian intellectuals to be in tune with what um, countries that were formerly occupied by the Soviet regime are currently uh, uh, going through. So, yeah, that's a that's a big dilemma. This is something that I did not expect would uh, we would be talking about today. Thank you. Okay, Botikos, on to you then. How important is it for for Russia to do a reassessment of its history and and come to terms with the fact that it was a a colonizer in Central Asia? How how important is it for the Central Asians that Russia start to do that? Yes, uh, thank you. I will uh, first come to your original question in how how is Russia imagining kind of the uh, non-Russian kind of polities and the explosion of Kahovka, the narratives around the explosion of Kahovka, I think revealed an important dynamic that unites not only kind of the official Russian understanding of the Soviet past, but also I think is deeper rooted, grained in um, kind of uh, Russian intellectual currents, but also wider population. So uh, one of the kind of narratives around it and a kind of a German um, academic website that explains kind of East European history also wrote about it. And I totally agree. And this was um, kind of my understanding of it as well, is that the idea was that we build these dams so we have the right to destroy them. So we developed Ukraine and we have the right to destroy all the infrastructure that has been there. So kind of the idea that Moscow developed non-Russian countries that um, developed Ukraine, brought it kind of literacy, uh, industrialization, and that's why they own us. And that ownership, that kind of claim to control that space should be one of gratitude. And, and 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 so these kind of um, the narratives around the explosions of Kahovka, which is a um, crime, um, uh, was actually um, kind of contextualized in that Russian imperial understanding of how it claims its power uh, to own kind of to own uh, the wider region. And so that kind of uh, blindness to imperialism that we see that Erica was just talk, uh, talking about is actually rooted in the um, the self-understanding of kind of Russian um, national idea, which uh, states that uh, we developed, we brought modernity and civilization uh, to um, our current colonies, but also our former colonies. And so that's why the word colony doesn't make sense, because uh, we are the victims. We sacrificed our own well-being and our own prosperity for them. So they should be grateful to us. And that there lies um, a failure to process the Soviet past, uh, because a lo- kind of a lot of the uh, poverty of the 1990s, but also uh, 1980s, and actually... Uh, when I look, um, you know, I'm a historian of the Soviet Union. I, for for a long time, I thought that the only time when Soviet citizens lived more or less okay, where they were not hungry, was from 70 to 85. But now my research, the current book that I'm writing, I see, I find a lot of kind of empirical data uh, that shows that ac- actually even from 1970 till 1985, there were a lot of shortages, a lot of economic problems, uh, a lot of people didn't have access uh, to 
products like milk, cheese, meat, even healthcare. So even that, my understanding that in the Soviet Union, only for 15 years, people could live without, you know, shortages, hunger, etc. Even that doesn't stand the ground. But the, uh, but so kind of a lot of the problems uh, that uh, uh, Russians themselves experienced during the Soviet regime did, was not handled with. And a lot of kind of the uh, politi- uh, political actors that abuse this term that we fed them, we fed the Caucasus, we fed Central Asia, we developed Ukraine, and they're not ungrateful, has many different reasons. But one is kind of this the narrative of victimhood, the narrative of kind of us giving them and them not being grateful. And, and that that is um, that was, again, striking, but not uh, absolutely not uh, surprising that exactly these narratives surround uh, today's uh, kind of uh, war, um, Russia, Russian propaganda, and also uh, explicitly uh, the recent events. But also, uh, this is how kind of Russian intellectuals, but also the Russian state and the Russian public imagine the wider region. And it will take time to kind of deconstruct these narratives. Uh, this is uh, what we are doing, but also with this article. Uh, but it will take years for us to deconstruct that. And one of the difficulties, um, speaking as a historian, is that a lot of the archival materials are located in Moscow, and many of them state secrets. So um, it is uh, sometimes very difficult to prove certain things because the center was never decolonized. The center never allowed kind of this epistemic knowledge to confront the center. Uh, but there are other ways to rethink it. And I, well, um, I think the war has opened eyes to uh, many people about kind of uh, these uh, hierarchies and inequalities, but also I think the continuation of kind of the Soviet uh, narratives uh, that and that Moscow is using now, I think should be a very important sign for us of how we need to rethink our vocabulary and uh, to rethink the narratives that um, very often in the West have been uh, uncritically adopted simply because uh, Moscow was seen as an equal partner in the conversation about the Soviet past, whereas scholars uh, in Ukraine, in the Caucasus, and Central Asia were not seen as equal partners. Uh, Moscow has skillfully created a narrative of nationalism, of kind of Ukrainians being nationalists, Georgians being nationalists, everyone being nationalists, and this was uncritically been adopted in uh, Western academia. So hopefully now there will be a rethinking of that. I don't know what it will take for Russian scholars uh, to actually seriously uh, start thinking thinking about it, one of kind of my understandings is that an empire needs imperial narratives, an empire needs imperial consciousness. So, and this is why it is so kind of uh, ingrained, but we will be trying and we will see how it goes. I think very important is that right now to many of the conferences, even on that, on the world, uh, several conferences that I visited in the last uh, several weeks, a lot of the Russian scholars are still being platformed as the most important voices to explain Russia or to explain kind of uh, the Soviet Union. And again, those who 
organized these conferences, I think uh, still did not understand that it is in diversity of different voices from different places that lies a better understanding. And so far, we still have these imperial structures and imperial understandings of who has the right to interpret realities. I I think uh, they're still there, and hopefully this will change. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, and our guests today are Erica Marat, professor at the National Defense University's College of International Security Affairs, and Bultikaz Kasimbekova, a lecturer, assistant professor in modern history at the University of Basel. And we're talking about their recent article, Reclaiming the Narrative, Decolonizing Central Asia Studies for a More Inclusive Understanding. Um, let's talk a little bit about great powers, because this is this is one that always happens in Central Asia uh, when it's getting coverage, that Russia is losing influence or, or China is gaining influence or losing influence or the United States isn't doing enough to keep influence in Central Asia. And and it, it, if you flip this, you, you and no one ever does, it seems like, but you could flip this and say the Central Asians are skillfully playing off uh, outside countries to get things built or, or get funding for projects that they need. But that's not the way it's presented. It's always instead we back this thing up and say, you know, like I said, China's gaining influence in Central Asia and Russia's losing it. The U.S. has lost influence in Central Asia. It doesn't, you know, uh, why, why, how much does that harm the image of Central Asia that they seem to be something that these, these bigger powers are fighting over all the time? And again, the Central Asians just seem to be victims of whatever the great powers are doing. I'll start with you, Botakaz. Well, that's a very good question. And I think, you know, I think that, uh, of course, Rethinking the concepts and the narratives that we use to interpret uh, the region is important, but it, of course, we need to stay also realistic about the geopolitical uh, realities as well. Uh, what is at stake right now is simply to look at uh, the region only and exclusively through the kind of the understanding of what constitutes power, of what constitutes the centers of this world. So I would say that, of course, we need to look at kind of how Russia looks at the region or how China looks at the region and what do they imagine their interest is. But however, one needs really, as you said, to understand how uh, people in Central Asia understand. But also when we talk about Central Asia, all different Five countries are different, and so they don't constitute one polity. Also, uh, deconstructing the region, we need to understand that there are kind of authoritarian leaders, there is civil society, and there are other different interest groups in these different countries. So I think once we look at all of this, we're not only practicing kind of ethical work of understanding people, but we're also are better equipped, I think, to understand kind of political processes in these different countries, because every time there is political event, uh, there are lots of surprises. Of course, in authoritarian states, a lot of things by the nature of itself take place, can be surprising because uh, kind of uh, it's also part kind of, of, of the political makeup. At the same time, 
when we are, when we oversee, I think the local developments, uh, we oversee a very important kind of trajectories. We um, kind of we are more prone to misunderstand a lot of the processes. Uh, so when we um, had the kind of this uh, suppressed revolution in uh, Kazakhstan in two thousand twenty-two, a lot of the kind of a lot of the debates around it were based on kind of this geopolitical or very superficial understanding and not uh, from the understanding uh, of the people. And I think it's many people like couldn't predict the resistance that uh, Ukrainians uh, would be determined to do simply because Ukrainians as actors were overseen. So I think it is very important for us uh, to understand and to get into a conversation with different actors, not only not making the same mistake of understanding Central Asia as one unit, or only through kind of the uh, the kind of perspective of authoritarian leaders, but involve as many actors as possible to understand the region. Yes, I <laughs> I think I lost an idea, but uh, maybe I can add afterwards. Yeah, no, no problem at all. No problem at all. Thank you, um, and Erica. I'll go to you. And, and you know, it's kind of it's the same point, right? There's there's a major project in Central Asia, let's say, and they have bidders coming in from different countries. Uh, to do this project at China, Russia, places in the European Union or something. Now, when the contract finally gets awarded, um, the way it's presented is, let's say China gets the, the bid. Okay, China wins big contract, like, the, and now they've put a mark down in Central Asia, right? That seems to be the way it's portrayed in the media. You don't get Central Asians go through process, tender process, make shrewd deal by picking Chinese company to get their needs. I mean, that that is not in the media. Instead, it's more like a victory for China, uh, and makes it look like Central Asia is just a place where you can buy your way, you can buy influence all the time. How, how harmful is that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it doesn't uh, pay attention to nuance, nuances uh, in each country and even in um, on a city level. So I'll give you an example of how it's really sometimes the local demand for specific services that drives um, Chinese presence in uh, Central Asia. And Central Asia, in that sense, is not the only one. It kind of, uh, it it fits into the pattern that we see in other parts of the Global South or even um, in Northern Hemisphere as well. So, for instance, there is a need uh, in urban areas for more policing and more <laughs> surveillance of uh, behaviors that are considered to be disorderly, uh, not fitting into the urban um, types of behavior. And we see those discussions taking place among urban residents long-term urban residents in major cities, uh, Almaty, Bishkek, Tashkent, even Dushanbe, the local residents, they prefer to have uh, what they see as cutting edge technologies for safer cities, smart cities. And that's when, where, where China comes in with its uh, technologies and software to install facial recognition cameras or license plate recognition cameras, smart cameras. And uh, yeah, that's how, that's one example of how uh, Chinese influence, economic influence expands. And it's not just the regimes, which are, uh, which ruling regimes in Central Asia, they do pursue their own interests, kleptocratic interests. That's uh, no question. 
but it's also there. There are more. There is more at stake. There is a buy-in among the population as well for what China offers, or even what Russia offers. There is still quite a bit of uh, influence of Russian media. In Central Asia, we can't deny that. And there's, uh, if you turn off Russian channels t- uh, t- tomorrow, there'll be quite a, you know, quite a bit of grievance uh, among uh, population all across Central Asia, mostly maybe in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, where the population is especially Russified, or um, as we call uh, in our decolonial <laughs> discussions, uh, most most erased, most culturally erased population. Um, so yeah, it's not, it's not necessarily a win for Russia and China, although those countries will take, uh, every possibility to exert their influence, uh, anywhere in the world, including Central Asia. But there is a buy-in among various groups, among kleptocratic regimes, among, uh, urban residents, among business, uh, elites, entrepreneurs, um, into trading with Russia and China. And I'm just finishing a report, for instance, on how entrepreneurs in, uh, Central Asia, they are, uh, sometimes willingly participate in circumventing Western sanctions and helping Russia to, uh, import necessary, um, necessary goods for everyday use, but also some uh, technologies that can be used uh, in Russia's war in in Ukraine. And the initiative for circumventing sanctions, it's not just, it's, it is, so sanctions dodging is uh, facilitated by Russia, of course, but then uh, there is quite a agency among entrepreneurs also in Central Asia to trade with uh, with Russia. Not everyone does. There are some who disagree and will not trade with Russia, but there is enough people to uh, find an opportunity and participate in those shadow economic activities um, and benefit from Western sanctions. So yeah, it's uh, the picture on the ground is much more complicated than what we read in newspapers. And I think sometimes we are unable to understand uh, the dynamics uh, when something big happens, for instance, like as what, what Chris was saying, as when, when protests unravel in Kazakhstan or in Uzbekistan, we don't really understand why they happen because we're so used to seeing the whole region as being part of, I don't know, great game, great power competition, whatever else. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um, and we're getting closer to the end. So I guess we let's, let's talk for the last topic. Let's talk about the central Asian leaders themselves. I mean, they don't seem to be helping in the decolonial discussion at all. Uh, they have nothing but compliments about Russia. Uh, you know, we, we just saw the victory day parade last month when of course everyone was happy to, to comment on their, uh, you know, their common effort during World War II, and none of the presidents were even born in World War II. But anyway, that seemed like some bond that, that would link them forever. Uh, I remember Akilbek uh, Japarov, the chairman of the cabinet of ministers in, in Kyrgyzstan, last year when he met, I think, Mistushin, the Russian prime minister, and he said that Kyrgyzstan had been a partner of Russia for 300 years and would be for the next 300 years, too. I mean, comments like that, it seemed to play exactly into that kind of colonial mentality. It, you know, when it, when they get international uh, attention, uh, what's your what's your thinking on that, Erica? 
Well, I think first of all, Central Asian leaders need to listen more carefully to the discussions taking place uh, um, uh, in the population, um, and especially in decolonial circles and academic uh, activist circles. Uh, That's the problem with any authoritarian regime that the leaders are so detached from the population. That's one. The second thing is... The Soviet regime, and this is something I've been specializing for a while, um, Soviet regime created really robust security apparatuses that are loyal to whoever is in power. And um, this is one of the uh, lasting legacies of this uh, totalitarian regime that uh, security structures that uh, Central Asian countries inherited, they are really the perpetrators of violence um, and they're, they were set up to be loyal to not only to whoever is in power of uh, a specific country, so the, um, let's say Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, but also be loyal to Russia. And there is a really robust network of uh, still military intelligence officers that are still connected to Russian uh, system. And they continue to replicate the Soviet way of torturing society, using violence against society. And whoever comes to power, this is one of the stickiest uh, legacies of Central Asia, uh, whoever comes to power is happily using those loyal institutions that were created during the colonial regime. And unlike, for instance, colonial regimes that were also brutal, in Africa or, you know, former British colonies. The, the Soviet regime never really left an independent judiciary uh, that we see, for instance, um, in India or even um, even in Pakistan or in uh, South Africa, for sure. And the, so there is no checks and balances against a violent state. And we continue to see this uh, happening again and again. And the regimes, again, they're detached, but they are, they are also very violent against the population. So this is something that hopefully will change over time as more and more, more and more in Central Asia, more people in Central Asia reprocess what the, the, the roots of how their countries, the republics, the present-day borders were form- formed by the Soviets a hundred years ago. That in the very foundation of uh, Soviet republics, um, there was violence and institutionalized violence, and how, in order to sh- uh, to get rid of uh, the Soviet colonial past or to move away from it, it's also important to. Re- consider what kind of institutions we have and to uh, rethink the you know the, the the foundations of those institutions and that's of course that's a huge challenge that's a long road ahead but hopefully we are moving in that direction in central asia okay thank you and both the cause pretty much the same question um you know when the leaders get up there and and, and stress the 
historical friendly ties with Russia, uh, you know, long partnerships, all, all those kind of things. They, they kind of play into that colonial mentality a little bit, don't they? I mean, it, uh, it seems like they're perpetuating the, the stereotype. Yes. Uh, yes, they do. And when we talk about kind of uh, giving the agency to the to the region, uh, what we mean is not simply to understand that authoritarian leaders are not part of this kind of uh, post-colonial um, system. So uh, we don't want to flatten hierarchies and say, oh, everyone is equal. And that's, and when we look at kind of these authoritarian le- uh, leaders and we say, okay, they are actually reproducing and engaging in, 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 in these hierarchies. What I think uh, the reason to rethink these terms and, and actually critically analyze them is not simply uh, to reimagine reality and produce an alternative reality. No. Uh, The reason is not to think that kind of uh, uh, these countries have the same power uh, that Moscow has uh, or China has. No. The reason is actually subjectivization, which is a process of decolonization and actually lending, kind of starting saying things that we didn't see or actually giving responsibility to some actions like perpetrating these post-imperial dependencies. So from one side, when we look at the May 9th parade, what we we can see that uh, they went there, and that's uh, one one story that we can say they went there, so actually we can talk about, you know, the near abroad, the post-Soviet dynamics. At the same time, we can notice certain things, for example, that Tokayev did not wear this George's uh, St. George's band that I think president of Uzbekistan had his own Uzbek version of that. So these are very little things, but in the context of the kind of colonial relationships, they, they, they speak um, a lot, they say a lot. Also, the fact that Kazakhstan for the second year did not celebrate May 9th parade gives nuance to that relationship, uh, the understanding that uh, the the reason the hierarchy and one cannot maybe, one doesn't have power to act independently. At the same time, there is a communication that that allows us to understand that this kind of dependency is not welcomed, but it, 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 um, it is still there. So one thing I think is to understand that these kind of, Erica said, the, these uh, authoritarian leaders are the leftovers of of the kind of the kind of colonial Soviet regime, and that's why kind of uh, there are two terms. There is one term that is uh, post-colonial and one term decolonial, and the di- difference between these two terms, post-colonial explains kind of these continuities, con- uh, colonial continuities. So even after independence, the societies still uh, have to struggle with a lot of the legacies of colonialism. It can be in different areas. And for example, the kind of the security services, kind of these dictatorial personalized regimes, is, of course, we have these post-colonial legacies. The term decolonial is actually grappling with these post-colonial legacies and actually trying to do something about it and kind of the process of uh, finding a a, a better language, but also trying to understand actors and what they do rather than 
uh, categorize them and then flatten them and, and essentialize them uh, gives us um, a, a, a very kind of different understanding. And why that is important, it's important not only that we will see tensions between uh, Central Asian leaders and Moscow, and uh, and uh, but also we will see kind of what is happening in Central Asia and how they are searching uh, for uh, different uh, realities, not only among the authoritarian leaders but societies. You know, and this this is not necessarily the same thing. We will see these dynamics, and this uh, it is very important to see a more complicated issue uh, and more complicated kind of nuanced dynamics because they influence decisions. Uh, so. So if one looks at it as, oh, all right, they are just puppets, uh, then, of course, it will influence the policy uh, that we will have with these countries. Whereas if we see different kind of actors in different groups, we will be able to make other choices in what kind of engagements are we entering. So, for example, uh, the current war has spurred really conversations between uh, Ukrainian scholars and Central Asian scholars, civic society groups that, that are easily overseen if we simply look at the kind of imperial centers and also kind of authoritarian leaders only. And uh, so in, in that sense, decolonization can also mean kind of democratization and democratization not only kind of in this co concept of democracy, but also really understanding the complexity of the region. And for people from the region, it will uh, provide better kind of understanding and skills and entrance points of how to deal with these legacies. So, um, of course, this is all important. And, and, and as Erica said, kind of a better engagement uh, on different levels uh, with the region is kind of um, the ultimate goal of that conversation. Okay, thank you. And we are pretty much out of time, but if either of you have a brief comment you'd like to make something I missed, uh, feel free. If I may, um, there's always a pushback um, against uh, not using the terms like post-Soviet or Eurasia or near abroad. Uh, and a lot, the pushback usually goes as follows. Uh, but so how, how else can we describe the region? How else can we make sure that we explain that there was a Soviet Union stretching from uh, Ukraine, Belarus, Baltic States to Central Asia? And uh, because all other options are not as uh, neat, not as succinct. And I think it is time for us to not be succinct or neat in our terminology. I now choose to use, when describing the Soviet regime, I, I choose to say countries formerly occupied by Soviet regime or Soviet Russia. And disclaimer here, you know, the, the word post-Soviet and Eurasia was literally in the titles of my books <laughs> recently. But uh, I'm moving on from that uh, terminology and choosing a, a more wordy terminology that I think is more precise uh, at this point. And it is completely okay not to label the, uh, you know, many, many regions as Eurasia um, that also has a political connotation. Uh, but name... Ukraine or Eastern Europe, Europe, South Caucasus, Central Asia, all in one uh, sentence. And that's okay if we name um, 
the regions as as they are as 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 opposed to those catch all categories and ultimately it is really new categories are being formulated and i hope they will be coming from the very places that we are discussing here as opposed to uh, externally imposed by russia the west or whoever else but thank you bruce always great conversations with you no, uh, thank you very much. And of course, I'll confess, I've seen these kind of terms in, in all kinds of people's papers. And I myself, I think I've used all these terms at one time or another in, in something that I've written. Um, so I'm as guilty as anybody of this. So thank you. An enlightening conversation. I appreciate you both being here. Uh, thank you both to cause and thank you, Erica. And you can find their article in the Comparative Politics newsletter on the American Political Science Association website. Thank you also, of course, as always, a big thank you to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjolis podcast producer in Washington, D.C., and a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjolis podcast or the Central Asian Focus newsletter by visiting Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thank you very much, and we'll be back next week. Thank you.